May you please assume that form of yours with four arms. <coughs> that is puzzling. Why does Arjuna say to Lord that please resume your form or please assume the form having four arms? But we know that Lord Krishna had two arms. For they say that Lord Krishna used to be live in Dwarika as the king with four arms. And perhaps he was driving Arjuna's chariot also with his form having four arms, we don't know. But anyway, Arjuna wanted to see the form of the Lord having four arms. And Lord Krishna obliged him. At the same time, just where the Manusham Rupam. But the four arms is not quite a human form. So at the end, again Arjuna also says, O Lord, seeing your human form, now, um, my fear is completely gone and my cheerfulness has been restored. The peace of my mind has been restored. So it looks like in the 11th chapter, there's a reference to these three forms. One is the cosmic form of the Lord. Other is the form with four arms. Lord Narayana, Shankar Chakra, Gadapadma, Dhari. So that which is commonly worshipped by the devotees. And again, the form of Lord Krishna with two arms. The regular human form. So, in this manner, in this manner, those who worship you, in what manner? So, somebody would say that, no, in this manner means worshipping you who is in cosmic form, because that is subject matter of the 11th chapter. But some other Acharya says, no, 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 not cosmic form, because seeing that cosmic form, Arjuna was frightened. So, how can you worship that cosmic form? So, he really means the form with four arms. But somebody says, no, no, ultimately Arjuna reports that seeing your human form, that my mind has now restored the peace, and therefore it is a human form of Lord Krishna with two arms, that is what is meant to be worshipped. So, you know, depending upon what it is that you want to uh, promote, I should say, or project, or, or, or whatever it is that you believe, and that is the meaning that you present. And therefore, different acharyas, Shankaracharya and others, they say, Shankaracharya says that this is upasana or meditation upon the Lord with cosmic form. Whereas Ramanuja Acharya, who is a worshipper of Lord Narayana, he would say, no, no, it is here, what is prescribed is the worship of the Lord with four arms. Whereas Madhvacharya and others, who are worshippers of Lord Krishna, they would say, no, no, this is the worship of Lord Krishna that is prescribed. <coughs> That's good also, you can take the meaning that you like, you know, nothing wrong in it. Now, we can't say this is right and that is wrong, but we would say that you start with the worship of Lord Krishna and then slowly it resolves into that of Narayana and then it goes into cosmic form. Maybe you can put it that way. Eva, in this manner. So you take your choice, you take your pick, let us say, you know, but important thing is to worship God. That is important. There must be worship in our life. Without that, there is no spiritual thing at all. Whatever it is, Vedanta and so forth and so on, and all pursuits of knowledge, but there must be worship in our life. It doesn't matter what form of worship it is, it is purely, the form is purely cultural. So there is a particular form here that may or may not suit everybody. So it may suit, even among India also it may not suit everybody, depending upon what your Ishtadevata is. And so, in what form the, the worship is done is okay. It, it, as I say, it is cultural. It depends upon your upbringing. And there is no insistence that it has to be like this. Of course, if you go to Iskandar, we will insist that you must only worship Lord Krishna. 
point. It's perhaps their experience, but we would say that what is important is to worship Lord. And for that Bhagavad Gita also provides certain forms, but any other forms are also okay, any other way of expressing my devotion to the Lord. But there must be some, it's, but Swamiji, I have my devotion in my heart, I love God, and God knows that. What's the need of me to do something? I said, you love your mother also. When Mother's Day comes, your mother loves that you love. And still she expects some gift from you, something from you, some kind of a gesture. I'm giving safety the example of mother, I mean, you know. So the point is that... <coughs> so, then love always expresses itself in the form of action. This is a rule, in fact. That that is love which will necessarily express itself in action. And action also in the form of seva, in the form of service, in the form of doing something, in the form of offering. Therefore the word bhakti is explained by at least one acharya in this way. You know the word bhakti is derived in this manner. It is derived from the root bhaj. And to that you add a, a suffix ti. So bhaj plus ti, that jakara gets transformed to kakara becomes bhakti. Bhaj sevayam, bhaj in the sense of seva, in the sense of service. But any service is not called bhakti, because its suffix ti has been added. So one acharya says, it is seva with love. And so, there is, a, there is this belief that when there is love, in some way or the other, it will express itself in the form of an action, which will involve some kind of a seva, service, some offering. That is why in the last ninth chapter also Lord Krishna says, Patram Pushpam Phalam Toyam Yome Bhaktya Prayachati. It doesn't matter what you offer. Fortunately for God, it doesn't matter to Lord Krishna, there is Lord, what you offer. He says when you go to lesser gods, lesser gods, then you must make sure. The smaller the God is, more important is to make sure that he is pleased. And depending on the status of the God, you must have the gift also must go accordingly. And so if you worship Lord Shiva in one way, Lord Narayana in another way, and then you worship Devi in a third way, you can't offer anything to anybody. You must know what to do. What is it the Devi likes? And what is it that Lord Shiva likes? What is it that Narayana likes? You should know that. And accordingly you should make an offering. Lord Krishna says, I am the self of all. It doesn't matter what you offer me. Because I am not interested in offering. I am interested merely in your bhava, in the very spirit that you have. That spirit of devotion is what I am interested in. But if the spirit of devotion is what the Lord is interested in, then why does he insist that we should, we should exhibit? He says you must display the spirit in the form of an offering. Whether you offer me just a leaf, or a little flower, or water, or fruit, doesn't matter what it is. But make an offering. Offering with devotion. Yomi bhaktya prachati. Lord says, I love that and I enjoy that. Whatever they offered, I eat it as though it's a great feast. And so many stories are being told as to how Lord Krishna, Lord is off, enjoyed his feast, even little things like a leaf that Draupadi offered him. So the idea is that upasana, this worship, worship means serving the Lord in some form or the other. That kind of a worship must be there in our life. Because that is what is pure, that is what purifies the heart. 
And so, here Upasate, those Lord, those who worship you. And as we said, it is easier for us to worship, or easier for generally people to worship, when, when the Lord is in a given form, because it is easy for my mind to visualize God or anything in a form. That's what my mind is accustomed to. <coughs> so most people, for most people, this is convenient or possible mode of relating to Lord. There are some, however, they may, they may not need that. Yecha and those who worship you, who is unmanifest, who is imperishable, who is beyond the forms and beyond any kind of attributes. So those who worship you, among them, these two, who are the best, and Lord Krishna said, tentatively, that Arjuna, as far as most devotees are concerned, I think that my worship with attributes, or form or attributes. You see, they talk of saguna sakara, meaning God having form as well as attributes. They talk of saguna nirakara, means God having attributes but no form. That's the kind of God that most people worship. Even they say that God is no form, but they always, they always assign some attribute. Whether you call him Father in heavens, whether you call him, you know, benevolent, something or other, we always look upon God as though he's not, even though he's not confined to a form, still he has certain attributes. You call him Saguna Nirakara, meaning formless but having some attributes. And finally, Nirguna Nirakara, no forms, no attributes at all. <coughs> And thus, depending upon one's own frame of mind, one relates to God in this way. Lord Krishna said that those who worship me with form and with attribute, in my opinion, they are the best devotees or they are the most exalted yogis. Not that others are not. How about those who worship you, who is beyond the form, who is transcendental? How about them? So Lord Krishna now talks about those devotees in the next two verses. ये त्वक्षरम निर्देश्यम अव्यक्तम पर्युपासते सर्वत्रगम चिन्त्यंच कूटस्थम चलंध्रुवं Continue the next verse. Sanniyamyendriyagramam Sarvatrasama buddhayaha Te prapnuvanti mameva Sarvabhuta hiterataha so in these two verses, Lord Krishna describes those who are devoted to the transcendental, the imperishable, the formless, the attributeless. As you said, that is the absolute truth, that is the ultimate truth. And that is the nature of the self and therefore ultimately one has to, when, when we say that, we have to know the Lord or God as our own self, this is the only way we can know Him. We can never know the omniscient, omnipotent as ourselves. Understand that. When he says, Aham Brahma, I am Brahma. I am, when somebody says, I am God, 
Not that he has become omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. Not that kind of a God. Because that omniscience, etc. are the attributes of the Upadhi, are the attributes of the personality. But whatever be the content of that Lord who is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, what is his content? That also is very simple Purusha. Very plain and simple awareness. That's what he is. And I am, as we are studying in Viveka Chudamani these days, and who, I, who am I? I am a limited being, limited in every way. I am limited in my knowledge, limited in my ability, limited in every way. And still, the essence of my being also is the same Purusha, same plain and simple consciousness. That's what I am. And that is a way to appreciate the non-duality, the advityatvam or non-duality of myself and God. That at the level of Vesha or the costume, he wears the costume of totality and therefore is omniscient, omnipotent. I wear the costume of this little personality and therefore I am limited in every way. And however, at the level of my being, I am one with the level of the Lord, the being of the Lord. <coughs> so those thus who meditate upon the identity with the Self and the Lord, Yetu, those however, However, to distinguish these devotees, these are described in the third and the fourth verses, to distinguish them from the devotees described in the earlier verse. Aksharam, those people, Paryupasate, those people who worship the Aksharam, Aksharam means immutable, imperishable. Naksharati, the Aksharam, so that which does not suffer any decay, any loss, that is imperishable. Or Ashnutaidi Aksharam, that which is all pervasive also is called Aksharam. You know Akshara, Akshara means a letter. So of course here Akshara however means that which is imperishable, that which is all pervasive. Even the letter A, the very first one, pervades all the letters in that sense also, Ashnutaidi Aksharam. So Lord who is all pervasive, alright, Lord who is imperishable. See understand that for him to be imperishable, he cannot have any form or attribute. Anything that is a form is, is subject to change. Any attribute which is there, however exalted it is, is also subject to change. And therefore, for that which is changeless or imperishable, has to be devoid of any form of any attribute. So those people who worship Aksharam, immutable, this is the Nirvishesham Brahma, Brahma without Vishesha, without any attributes or qualification. And this is discussed, this word Akshara appears also elsewhere in the scripture, like in the Brahadarnika Upanishad. In Mundaka Upanishad, Brahadarnika Upanishad. In a famous dialogue between say Jagnivakya and Gargi. So Gargi is, is a woman who challenges Yajnavalkya in the court of King Janaka. So uh, once upon a time there was a gathering of many learned people in the court of King Janaka. In the ancient days he was called Videha because he was performing a, a very elaborate yaga lasting for many days and he invited many scholars. In the evening or in the spare time then they would assemble and have scholarly discussions. So when all these learned people were assembled in the court then this thought occurred to King Janaka. Hey who is the Brahmishta? who is the one who is the most exalted knower of Brahma, of the Vedas or of God. I would like to offer him a gift of one thousand cows with the horns that are decked in gold 
And so he made an announcement that among those who are assembled here, whoever is Brahmishtha, whoever is most versed in Brahma or God, he will get the gift of 1,000 cows, 1,000 best cows, with their horns decked in gold. So Yajnavalki also happened to be in that sabha, in that court. And he asked his disciple, Hey Somashrava, take these thousand cows to our ashram. <laughs> Just like that. And the disciple took that cow away. And the people are sitting there and they're furious. What, are, what do you mean? Nobody else dared to get up. Nobody else dared to get up and say that I am Brahmistha or I am the most learned in Brahman. But Yajnavalkar did it without declaring. He just asked his disciple to take over the cows. And so the one who was a priest of law, King Janaka, he was a local one, you know. King Janaka's Purohi, the priest, he gathered the courage and he stood up in the court and asked Yajnavalkar, what do you mean? You think that you are Brahmistha? You think that you are the most learned one? He says, no, no, I don't think I'm the most learned one. I'm just desirous of 1,000 cows. <laughs> and so he got more furious. And he said, you'll prove. You will have to deserve, you'll prove that you are the most learned one before you can, you know, uh, before you really can possess the cows. He says, well, if that is what you wish, fine. And that is how our debate began. And this is a very interesting debate in the Upanishad also. Here this is not quite a debate. This is really a questioning and testing. Where each learned person, sage way, gets up and he asks Yajnavalkya a question. Of which he knows the answer. You see, to ask a question of which out of jignas, out of a desire to know is one thing. But asking a question to test somebody is another thing. Because you will ask a question in such a manner as to confuse that person. You might use the words, it can be interpreted in more than one ways. All this is called chala, jati, all these different methods are employed in, in discussions. I'm sure they're employed in parliaments and senates and courts of law particularly. <laughs> so that's the kind of discussion that takes place there. That's called jalpa. You see, actually that kind of dialogue or discussion should be what you call vada. Vada means a kind of di- discussion or dialogue wherein both the parties are interested in determining what the truth is. When you don't have any preconceived notion, when you're an open mind, and you want to determine what the truth is, and with that idea, the discussion takes place. But where you already have determined what the truth is, then also there are two ways. In one case, that in an attempt to prove yourself right, and you will make all the arguments to prove that you are right. Or, there's another way where you want to prove him wrong, that's all. You may not have a position of your own, but you just prove him wrong. In parliament this happens very often. I have nothing to offer, but you are wrong. That's called vitanda, jalpa and vitanda. Usually decent people do not, uh, they do not take to this kind, these modes of, of discussions. But sometimes you have to. To protect the truth, you may have to resort to this Jalpa and Vitanda also. You find the other fellow really, you know, because he just makes all kinds of arguments, distorted arguments, and and maybe he creates an impression that is right, then you may also have to perhaps, you know, 
you may have to meet him on his own ground. Anyway, so this is how the discussion takes place and each one gets up and tries to and asks a question of Yajnavalkya in a manner that may confuse him also. One by one Yajnavalkya replies them. They all sit down and quiet. And of course one rule is that as long as one discussion is going on, nobody else will interfere. Only when he is satisfied that his question is answered and he then becomes quiet, then another one will get up. Of all of this, Gargi was also one. And she also got up and asked Yajnavalkya, Hey Yajnavalkya, what it is? That pervades everything. Just as the water pervades the earth and the fire pervades the water. And similarly also, what is that pervades everything? Like these questions were asked. First she says, what is just as the earth is pervaded by water? What is that pervades the water? Yajnavalkya is the fire. What is that pervades fire? There is what's the cause of fire? Air. What's the cause of air? Because cause pervades the effect. So what's the cause of air? The space. And what's the cause of space? And like that she keeps on asking. Ultimately, we go all the way up to Hiranyagarva, Saguna Brahma, and what is it that's the cause of that? Now, that is the point where the cause and effect relationship fails. You know, I must have told you earlier, as some person, one, someone was asking me, a mathematician or a, or a physicist, Swamiji, how does Vedanta explain creation? <coughs> I said, well, Vedanta explains creation like this, just as a snake is created from rope. A famous rope snake example, where instead of rope you perceive a snake. That's what we call delusion. So just as snake is created from rope, so also Vedanta says, from God the universe is created. And he was tremendously happy, flabbergasted, you know, and he was really excited. He said, that's amazing, wonderful. Now a few minutes of thinking, then he asked me, well, Swami, you can you tell me, what is the mathematical relationship between the rope and snake? <laughs> I said, there is no mathematical relationship because had there been a relationship, then the snake would become as real as the rope. On the other hand, we say that Brahma Satyam Jagan Mitya, that cause is real. Brahman is real. God is real. Jagat of the creation is Mitya, is unreal. There is no relationship between the unreal and the real. In a different way, up to that point, you can go, you can, this, this, this search in the form of the effect and cause can lead you up to that. Can lead a scientist up to the, the primordial material principle, but you can never jump from matter to the spirit because they are not connected by cause and effect. <coughs> so Gargi wanted to know what he says and she pressed that question, a question similar to this. Then he warns us, Gargi, you are pressing your inquiry too far. I suggest that you better keep quiet, otherwise your head will drop off. That's the way of saying. Gargi understood and she became quiet. And then somebody else again got up and yet again Gargi got up. So of the nine discussions, two belong to Gargi in that particular, you know, in that, in that section. Then again Gargi says to Yajnivalkya that I am now equipped with two arrows. Comparable to two arrows. I have two questions which are comparable to two arrows. And let me see how you deal with them. Challenges him. And then asks him two questions. Of which the second question is, what is it? That is the nature of Akshara, the immutable. And Yajnavalkya replies, 
Yajnivalkya doesn't say that this is what I say because then how can you say that? Because you are what you are and if you are immutable you can't say what immutable is. So he says, Etadvaita Daksharam Gargi Brahmanaha Abhivadanti. He Gargi, this is how Brahmanaha, the knowers of Brahman describe the immutable. Asthulam, Ananam, Akraswam, Adirgham, a very famous dialogue. What's immutable? Asthulam, Ananam, Akraswam, Adirgham. It is neither gross, nor subtle, nor long, nor short, nor this, nor that. In short, Aksharam, the immutable, is described as devoid of any kind of an attribute. So this is how the transcendental or the immutable is, is unfolded or described in the scriptures as neti neti, not this, not this, not this. And therefore, in order for you to meditate upon that which is without the attribute, what should happen? Who can attribute upon, who can meditate upon the one without attributes? The one who is without attributes himself. The idea is that in order for me to be able to meditate upon that which is beyond all the attributes, I myself also must become free from all the attributes, meaning I must become free from the identification with my personality. The point is, as long as I look upon myself as possessed of form, I can't think of God as beyond the forms. I can think of the God in the same way as I think of myself. This is important. So when people ask this question, Swami, how can I worship God who is my own self? But wait a minute, what do you think of yourself? How do you look upon yourself? Oh, I look upon myself as a woman or a man. Okay, that means that you are, you look upon yourself merely as one possessed of the form and the name and the attributes. Then the only God that you can conceive of also is the one who is possessed of the name and form and attribute. So if I am strongly identified with my gross body, that, of course that fifth verse will come. Then for me, God also is with body. When I say that I am worshipping God without form, it's just a lip service, nothing more than that. And therefore, here we are talking about those devotees who are, have become free from the identification of the body, identification of the mind, free from all the identifications. Those who appreciate themselves as the devoid of attributes, and then alone this negation is possible. When I negate, that is when I give up the identification of my own body, I have in effect given up identification with all the gross bodies. And when I give up the identification with my subtle body or my mind, I have in effect given up identification with all the subtle bodies. When I give up identification my causal body, I have given up identification all the causal bodies. That is called neti neti. What is neti neti? Not this, not this. That means giving up the identifications. Why is it necessary to say that you are not this and you are not that? Because I think I am that and I am this. That is why. Since I already have notions or conclusions about myself as to who I am, therefore the Upanishads say, I say I am a man. He says no. Woman? No. Good? No. Bad? No. Happy? No. Unhappy? No. Successful? No. Doctor? No. Nothing. It has become free from all identifications. And so the words that Lord Krishna also uses here are really, you can't, that means it's not that Lord Krishna is trying to describe something. He's only trying to, trying to help us to drop all kinds of notions that we have. Ultimately, that is what we would achieve in our life, is to drop things, understand? As Vedanta would explain, it is nothing that we have to achieve in our life, it is something that we have to give up. Because what we are seeking to achieve is our own self. Happiness or freedom which I am seeking is my own self. 
If that is so, then where is the question of seeking? Then what am I supposed to do? You, I just, I am just required to drop whatever obstacles there are in order to own up that. I am, I am free, all right, but I am not at the moment able to own up that. As Swamiji, there is a disowning here. Not owning up myself. How do I own up myself? By giving up all the obstacles which are there, which prevent me from owning up myself. And so, really speaking, Vedanta looks upon our life as a process of dropping things. Dropping notions, dropping delusions, dropping illusions, nothing else. And so, therefore you always find here, offering something, surrendering something, giving something, serving something, all of that always involves offering. So that is the, that is the process that Bhagavad Gita or Vedanta prescribes. A process, our life becomes a process of offering, of getting rid of things, of dropping things. And so, having done that, then it is possible for one to be able to contemplate upon this truth. So, ye to those who are those kind of devotees, who are the taktaishanaha, those people are free from all the ashanas. So, those first, first of all, as Sankaracharya explains, so who are the people who can do this? Taktaishanaha. Those people are free from all the ashanas, all the desires. All the people who are free from, that means, as he would say, those who are renunciates. Not necessarily renunciates in form of wearing certain clothes, etc., but those who are renunciates in terms of their mind, Taktaishanaha. Sanyasta Sarva Karmanaha. Those people who have given up all the activities. Because here we are talking about those people who are, who are seeking to understand that identification, identity between Brahman and the Self. And as it will be said, it requires me to completely withdraw my mind. So ye to those people who are of this nature, who attain that kind of maturity. Aksharam, Aniradesham, Avyaktam, Paryupasade. Those who contemplate upon, who worship here, contemplation upon Aksharam, which is immutable, and of these Aksharam are immutable, seven more characteristics are also described by Lord Krishna to help us just contemplate. One is Aniradesham. Aniradesham. So that which cannot be so that which cannot be described, anirdeshyam. Shabdena vyapadeshtum ashakyam. Though that which cannot be described in words. Why is it so? Avyaktam, because it is unmanifest. You know what is manifest? Manifest is that which is the, which can be objectified by sense organs. So that which can be objectified by sense organs is called manifest. What's the nature of Brahman? What's the nature of immutable? Avyaktam, unmanifest, which means that which cannot be objectified by the sense organs. And all of our knowledge comes from sense perceptions. So here, self or Brahman is not the object of sense perception necessarily. Because the one who is trying to do this, the self is the very nature of the one who is trying to meditate. Understand that who is the subject of meditation here? My own self. This is the meditation upon the meditator. So there cannot be a process of objectification. On the other hand, in the previous mode of worship, when I am worshipping God with a form, there is some objectification because I can visualize God with forms, with attributes, 
and therefore there is I say the duality between the worshipper and the worshipped remains. Here on the other hand, the very duality between the worshipper and the worship is sought to be erased. And therefore all these various lakshanas or characteristics that Lord Krishna provides in this verse help us to, to give up that idea of objectifying God. Because whenever we meditate upon the self or meditate upon anything, the mind has a tendency to visualize something, to objectify something. Because Lord Krishna says, avyaktam, understand, it is unmanifest. That means that which cannot be objectified by the sense organs. Because that is the one, because of which the sense organs are able to perceive. What is it because of which the mind performs its functions? What is it because of which the eyes see? What is it because of which the ears hear? What is it because of the speech talks, speaks? That's how the question is asked in the Keno Upanishad. And the teacher replies that, Shrutrasya Shrutram Manasaha Manaha It is the ear of the ear, mind of the mind, eye of the eye. That means it is that which illumines the ear. It is that which illumines the eyes. It is that which illumines the speech. It is that because of which these and the mind and all of these faculties function. It is the very subject, that drashta, that witness. And therefore, self or Brahman cannot become the object. It cannot be objectified by these faculties. The example that you commonly give is with a telescope. There is one thing you can never see with a telescope. And what is that? the eyes. Your own eyes you can never see with the telescope. Because it is because of eyes. You can say, what are the eyes? Telescope of the telescope. In the language of Upanishad, eyes are telescope of the telescope. Meaning what? That because of which the telescope sees. The telescope cannot see that because of which it sees. Understand? Similarly also, eyes cannot see that because of which they see. Because just as eyes are behind the telescope and enabling the telescope to see, similarly also the self is that because of which the eyes, ears, all the faculties of perception and the mind, intellect, all of these are able to perform their functions. And therefore, self cannot become the object of that perception. It cannot be objectified. That means the very attempt of objectification also has to stop. But don't try to visualize something, don't try to touch something, don't try to feel something, don't, that's all fine. In other kind of meditation, everything is fine. But here, in this one, there which is devoid of every kind of an attribute. And there is no even effort also involved. Because even the, the one who makes effort, he also must get resolved. Avyaktam, anirdesham. Since that is, therefore, it cannot be described in words. It cannot be described or pointed out anirdesham. Sarvatragam. It is sarvatra gachati sarvatram. So the one that goes everywhere, that's all pervasive. So that which pervades, so the space and time and everything. Not in the sense of the space pervading everything, but that which even pervades the space. That means that which even illumines the space. That is also the witness of the space. Achintyam, that which cannot be thought of by the mind, because that is the one, because of which the mind thinks, and therefore, that which cannot be thought of by the mind, but that which is even the, the witness of the mind. Kutastham, 
Kutastham. That's an interesting word. Kuta. So, Kuta is that which is uh, uh, one meaning of the word Kuta is anvil. Anvil upon which like a, uh, a goldsmith will, um, you know, make his, his ornaments. So, Kutavat Tishtadi, that which is like an anvil, so when the ornaments are being formed, that are, the ornaments keep on changing in their form and name, and in all the changes in the names and forms, that which remains a changeless substratum. That because of which the changes take place, but the one that does not change, so that is an anvil. That's an example. Or kuta also means that which is false. Like a false witness. The fellow says something, you know, he takes the oath all right. And he gives his, uh, you know, uh, evidence. But it is false. What is false? The one, so something is inside and something else is outside. The truth is something else and what is shown is something else. Maya is like that. Maya means magic is like that. When there is nothing, the magic creates the appearance of something being there, tangible being there, and so also maya supposedly is the cause of the creation. Where there is no reality in the creation, it makes an appearance as though something is very tangible, something is very real. And therefore, Shankaracharya interprets the word kuta, meaning maya. So kuta itishthadi, one that obtains in maya, as a very substrate on the maya, very witness to the maya, so that because of which maya also, the creative power, also is able to create. So that which is the substratum, the witness of even the power of creation, which is what we call maya. Kutastham, so the witness, the substratum. Achalam, dhruvam, and so achalam, that which is immovable, dhruvam, that which is nityam or eternal. So thus Lord Krishna provides all these seven attributes or rather seven characteristics for us to help us to meditate upon the meaning of aksharam or immutable. So those who worship Lord such as that, how, how are they able to meditate or contemplate upon Lord such as that? The fourth verse tells us, Sanyamya Indriya Gramam Sarvatra Sambuddha Te Pratnavanti Mameva Sarva Bhuta Hitayarataha. So here three things are being said for those who are the devotees of the immutable, devotees of the transcendental, devotees of that which is beyond the names and forms and attributes. So what kind of a preparation is required for one to be able to contemplate upon that? First is Sanyamya Indriyagramam. Indriyagram, Indriya means sense organs. Gram means the group. Indriyagramam, the group of the sense organs. We have five organs of perception and five organs of action. Sanyamya, Samyak Niyamya, very well controlling, very well mastering. So one who has gained a complete mastery over the organs of perception and organs of action. Having complete mastery over the group of sense organs. This is very important. So for meditation, what are the important things? Having gained a mastery over organs of perception and organs of action. 
What is meant by mastery over sense organs? That your sense organs do what I want them to do. I tell my eyes, come on now, come and sit where you are, you know, which is your place. Now don't go around, don't look around. I says, okay. Come on, ears now, don't bother to listen about what's happening there. Just be here. Be in, so be in your center. Ears says, okay. I tell my hand, come on now, stop doing all this stuff. You know, all this gestures. Just sit quietly. Okay. Thus, as I tell these organs of perception, all of them obediently do whatever I want them to do. That is called the mastery. You know, when can that happen? When I say that my ears, don't go there, remain here. Okay. Just as we tell our child or son, you know. Come on, my son, now, stop playing, come home. When he gets in the home, same kind of pleasure or more pleasure than what he is getting out of his play, then alone he will do. Otherwise not. Otherwise unfair, very often for us to even demand something, but anyway, that may be necessary. Because a fellow will not get pleasure from, from study and so whatever, but then. So when I tell my mind, come on mind now, come and, come and now repeat Namashivaya. When will my mind do that? When in that activity also it is satisfied. Otherwise you find, you know your teenager son, every evening comes home and says, Mom, I'm not hungry. He doesn't eat at home. Why is he not hungry? He's really not hungry. Mainly because he doesn't like food that is cooked at home. He looks at them, oh, again, same dal, same thing, same Indian food anywhere. So then he, he quietly, he has gone out and has had enough food, you know, in a place where he likes. And mom doesn't know why he doesn't eat. And she keeps on trying to persuade him, you know. But when will he eat at home? When she cooks food, at least as good as what this fellow gets in McDonald's or wherever the restaurant, wherever he goes. Or better. Similarly also our mind keeps on running around in search of pleasure, little bit of bits of pleasures everywhere. When will that mind will mind will have the incentive to remain with me? When inside also the mind gets the same kind of pleasure or satisfaction. So when is it possible for really when is it really possible for us to control the sense organs in the mind when we have gained the inner cheerfulness, the inner poise, the inner happiness? And how does that happen? As I said, by deliberately leading a life of self-growth or self-purification. It's not just a miracle. It's not that I can manipulate my mind by some pranayama or something like that and keep it locked up, you know. It doesn't, it doesn't work too long. Really speaking, the way to be able to master our personality is to develop the inner satisfaction. And that is a process. That is what is called yoga. And that is what was described earlier. When a person has lived a life of worship, of God. When it is said, matparaha, where it is understood that the goal of my life is limitlessness, which is what we call God. And therefore, Matkarmakrut, then I perform the actions for the sake of him, because that is the one that I want. 
So in this manner, one who is living the life or attempting to live a life, that becomes a process. As a result, one keeps on discovering that inner satisfaction, inner purity. The ragadveshas, the likes and dislikes, slowly and slowly start dropping off. This is what we call the karma yoga. Performing karma or performing actions is an offering to the Lord. Prasad buddhi, receiving the results as the gift of the grace of God. We'll have a chance to discuss that in this chapter itself. So one who has thus conscientiously lived a life, as Swami would say, emotional maturity is not something that comes automatically. It is something that one has to make an effort, one has to initiate the effort. And that effort for emotional maturity or inner purification can be initiated provided I have value for it. And that value comes when I realize that what I am seeking in my life is to be discovered with myself and not outside of myself. <coughs> and to discover that I require a mind which is together. A mind that enjoys that emotional independent maturity. A mind that enjoys that, that, that inner purity. It is that mind with which I can discover my own self. And therefore, there is a value for that mind. And then there is a value for the values because these values such as non-violence give rise to that mind. So the values become valuable. <coughs> That's how in my vyavahara, in my life, there is a demonstration of these values, even karma yoga. Sanyamya indriya gramam. So those who have had a, have a complete mastery over that group of sense organs, including mind also, then the second qualification, Sarvatra Samabuddhaya. So those people, so Samabuddhaya, those equal minded everywhere. Samabuddhi, those who enjoy an equanimity of the mind, or those who look upon everything as equal. So Swami, that is not practical, nothing is equal in this world. How can you look upon things as equal? Yes, as far as the forms are concerned, nothing is equal. They will say that those who look upon so siddhi siddhyo samabhutva samatvam yoga uchyate Lord Krishna in Bhagavad Gita talks about this samatvam, the sameness in many places. Samabuddha Those who look upon the success and failure as equal. How can you look upon them as equal? Not success and failure as such, but success is a particular form in which something comes. Something comes to me in the garb of success and something comes to me in the garb of failure. So rather than going, uh, rather than giving importance to the form which is success and failure, what is it that is coming before me? He says, it is grace of God which appears before me in the form of success. Same grace of God or God himself appears before me in the form of failure and therefore not looking at success and failure the form but then what comes to me or where it comes to me from or how can we look everybody as equal not from as far as their personalities are concerned because they are definitely not equal but the person who informs the personality is the same in all the personalities. Kshetrajnam chapimam vidhi sarvakshetreshu bharata Here do not understand that I am the self in all the personalities. Sarvatra samabuddhaya And that's how Lord Krishna says in several places. 
विद्यावने असंपन्ने ब्राह्मणे गिहस्तिनी सुनी चाहिए पंडिता समदर्शिन सर्वत्र I give importance to the the diversity. I give importance to the disparity. I give importance to the mere appearance or name and form. When I give appearance to the costume, then nothing is equal. There are going to be likes and dislikes. This beggar, I hate it. The king, I love. That's all. And so, if I look at the merely form, then beggar, aversion. King, attachment. I can become free from attachment and aversion only when I appreciate that the beggar and the king are both played by the same actor. Then there is no attachment, no aversion. And so, sambuddhaya, those are equal-minded everywhere, which means that those are free from the raga and the dvesha, likes and dislikes, which means those who enjoy what we call vairagya, enjoy a dispassion, freedom from the passions, namely attachments and aversion. And third, Sarvabhuta Hiterataha. Those who are disposed to the welfare of all beings, Sarvabhuta Hiterataha. Rataha. Rataha I explained two ways. Those who delight in, or those who are disposed. Hite, for the well-being of Sarvabhuta, all the beings. So those who delight in the, in the welfare of all the beings, or those who are disposed towards the welfare of all the beings. See, this is a big thing. You know, who are the people who can worship that immutable? Those who have gained this kind of a maturity. Those who delight in the welfare of all. Who can delight in the welfare of all? The one who does not need welfare himself, number one. As long as I need my welfare, it is difficult for me to delight in welfare of all. If I am interested in my welfare, then I can delight in welfare of those who are interested in my welfare. That means, I will, be, I will delight in the welfare of those from whom I can get welfare ultimately. 
and I will not delight in the welfare of those who are a threat to my welfare. So who can delight in the welfare of all? Those who do not need welfare themselves. Who can be a real servant to the society? One who does not need service himself. Otherwise, uh, there is always some X to grind and whatever I do, there will always have some kind of a motivation to do something in a certain way and not in some other way. So thus, those who become free from the need of their own welfare, having discovered that inner satisfaction out of themselves. So understand that this is not something that you just mentally do. As I said, this is the result of a process of inner growth of discovering an inner freedom or an inner satisfaction. Somebody says, Swamiji, how is it ever possible for anybody to, to bring about welfare of all? It's not possible. It is true, it's not possible. None of us can really, uh, can be disposed or can bring about the welfare of all. If you can do welfare of one person, that is good enough, that's a great accomplishment. How about welfare of all? But at least I'm disposed to the welfare of all. I wish the welfare of all. But Swami, you wish the welfare of the fellows, I wish the welfare of them. They don't wish my welfare. It's always a problem. I don't hurt them, but they hurt me. Similarly also, I wish their welfare, they don't wish my welfare. Even wishing the welfare of those who do not wish my welfare. Not only that, Shankaracharya would go to the extent of saying that even wishing the welfare of those who hate me or who actually are enemical to me. So, Nirvairas Sarvabhuteshu, one who does not entertain enmity to anybody, that anybody includes even those who are enemies of him. Now, these are all tall talks, these are all big things, these are not ordinary things. But just to get an idea of what is this growth process, to what extent we can grow, all of these actually at least reflects or this describes what is the potential that we have. So this is the potential that each one of us has, that we can grow in such a soul, we can become so large-hearted. We can grow in our accommodation to such an extent that everything is fine. And so even those who hate me, so love those who hate you, you know, so those who are devoted to or delight in or disposed to the well-being of all, those who bless everybody. This much we can do, bless everybody. Sarve bhavantu sukhina, let them be happy. Sarve bhavantu sukhina, at least we can pray. Let all be happy. Sarve santu niramaya, let all be healthy. Sarve bhadrani pasyandu, let all see auspiciousness. May none suffer from pain. Even if outwardly I cannot, I do not do anything, inwardly I can do. Somebody, Swami, just insulted me, somebody hurt me. Say, let him be happy. May God bless him. Bless those who even hate you. This is a practical thing to do. And we have to do it. And that's how this idea of reaction will go. I retaliate otherwise. Moment somebody does something, I retaliate right away. He tells me one word, I'll tell him two. Let me see how he how gets away with it, you know. Nobody can get away with it. He gives me one slap, I'll give him two. 
That's the usual way we retaliate. But the bhaktas, devotees of Lord, they do not retaliate. So does it mean that if somebody slaps me on one cheek, then you present another cheek? If you can. It's not easy. And I don't say that you do. But as I say, if somehow it can happen that your love is not stifled in spite of his hurting you. Suppose, as I said, you can be so great. That means, so these are very demanding things. The idea is that this challenges us to grow to that extent, then we can contemplate upon or meditate upon or worship that which is the highest principle, the transcendental principle, the immutable. Then we can know the God as our very self. Te prapnuvanti mameva. Hey Arjuna, they definitely reach me. There is no doubt about that. So as far as the Vedantins are concerned, this is a real verse. As far as the Vedantins are concerned, te prapnuvanti mameva. Te mameva, te eva mameva. The eva kara is interesting. See in the fourth verse, in the second line if you see, te prapnuvanti mameva. Eva means indeed. So where will you connect that evakara? Te prapnundi maam eva They attain me indeed They indeed attain me These people also attain me You know that's how they will say Those devotees reach me The earlier ones The Sagan Upasakas The worshippers of God with form Or attributes They definitely attain me so These people also attain me That is how the the bhakti acharya will say. You know what will the Vedantic acharyas will say? Te eva maam prapnamandi. The eva kara goes with te. Te eva maam prapnamandi. They alone reach me. <laughs> or te prapnamandi. Te maam prapnamandi. Eva. They definitely reach me. So they alone reach me, or they definitely reach me, or they reach me indeed. <coughs> it's not a matter of reaching really. Even earlier also they were me alone. It's not that they have to reach me. Even earlier also they were me alone. It's only on, our, only on account of ignorance they thought that they were different from me, and therefore they were trying to achieve me. Now they realize that they have nothing to achieve. And so it is achievement of already achieved. Praptasya praptihi. There is no achievement in the primary sense. There is as though an achievement. So we say, I got it. Even though I always had it. I, I had this mala in my, in my neck. But somehow I forgot about it. I was looking for it everywhere. Swami, what are you looking for? Hey, did you see my mala? Yes, Swami. It's right in your neck. Oh, I got it. It's not that I got it, I always had it, but still we say I got it, because ignorance creates a feeling that I don't have it. On account of ignorance, I, I feel as though I do not have it, even though I have it. And by knowledge, there is now it creates a feeling as though I got it. So it is the praptasya prapti, attainment of what is already attained. Brahmaveda Brahmayo Bhavati, the one knower of Brahman becomes Brahman. Brahmayavasan Brahma Apyeti Knowing Brahman, it becomes Brahman. And so forth. 
And so earlier also Lord Krishna said, Jnani Tvatmaiva Mevatam. This Jnani is my Atma, is my own self. <coughs> so these two verses, in these two verses, Lord Krishna described uh, his devotees who worship the immutable. But this is being described to show how difficult it is. To contrast it from the worship of the, the Lord with attribute. And that is being said in the fifth verse. The fifth verse says that. Klesho dhikatarastesham Avyakta sakta chetasam Avyakta higatir dukham Dehavad bhiravapyate Kleshah adhikatarah tesham Avyakta asakta chetasam Avyaktahi gatihi dukham Dehavad bhi avapyate Tesham adhikatarah kleshah Kleshah is translated as affliction or the pain is adhikataraha greater still. For whom avyakta asakta chetasam, whose minds are committed to avyakta, the unobjectifiable, the immutable, the transcendental. So those whose minds are committed to the, the formless, committed to the imperishable, committed to that which is beyond all the attributes, they have greater affliction. That means that they have greater difficulty. What do you mean greater difficulty? Because even the worshipper of God with the form also a difficulty. It is not that we can worship God without some difficulty. What is the difficulty, Swami? Difficulty is that in order for me to worship God, it is necessary that I must at least withdraw my mind from other forms of worship. I stop worshipping wealth, I stop worshipping all that stuff, you know. In short, only when I withdraw my mind from the worship of the material things, then alone it's possible for me to worship God, is it not? That itself is a lot of klesha, it's a lot of pain, it's very painful. But here it is more pain. The idea is that adhika tarah, adhika, even worshipping God itself involves pain in as much as I have to really completely change the the, 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 the pattern of my mind because mind usually runs away usually runs into what we call the sensuous pleasures that's the usual pattern of the mind it's an extrovert mind always seeking its gratification from things outside of itself because there's a conclusion that I'm unhappy and I'm lacking and I'm miserable and there's security and happiness is to be found from outside because of that conclusion mind always runs outside Seeking gratification, seeking security from things outside of itself. In order for me to worship Lord, it is necessary to completely turn this mind around. So that it doesn't run into <coughs> the objects and that I can focus it upon the Lord for his worship. So that is a big thing. That is what Karma Yoga is for. So, Adhika Klesha hai, Adhika hai. Even this is what we call the process of self-growth. When the mind which is extrovert, all the time running around or running out, 
becomes introvert, becomes centered upon the self. It becomes, it gains that level of tranquility, level of poise, a level of inner cheerfulness or inner self-sufficiency. So that itself is, is not an easy process. So that itself involves a lot of exertion. That is a klesha means exertion. That involves a lot of exertion. But now, when we talk about contemplating or meditating upon God without any attribute or without any form, then what a greater exertion because, as we'll see, at least worshipping God with form, I can at least retain the identification with my body. I can remain an individual being and worship Him. But in order for me to worship or contemplate upon God beyond the forms, in fact, I must even give up the identification with this body. Identification with my own personality. It is necessary. Therefore, it is even more, the exertion is even greater. In short, a greater level of renunciation is called for. The greatest level of renunciation is called for, for worshipping Lord who is beyond the attributes. So Lord Krishna says in the second line, Avyaktahe katir dukham Dehavadbhi avapyade Dukham avapyade It is this difficulty. Dehavadbhi with those who are identified with the body, those who are identified with their personality, when the identification is strong, then it is extremely difficult or nearly impossible, is less extremely difficult to be able to contemplate upon God without any attribute. It may happen perhaps that my mind is able to do it for some short time, but to gain an abidance in that Lord or abidance in Brahman that is beyond the attributes is extremely difficult for a person who has an identification with his own body. The idea is that when I look upon myself as the one having the forms and attributes, it becomes extremely difficult for me to focus my mind upon that which is beyond the form or beyond the attributes. Therefore, Lord Krishna says, Hey Arjuna, therefore I told you that worshipping God with attributes is better. So in that sense, Lord Krishna says, keeping in mind the adhikaris or the, the, the aspirants of the nature of Arjuna, meaning the general aspirants in general, that most have difficulty even worshipping God because that requires the mind to be withdrawn from its preoccupation with its sensuous gratification. But then, those who want to meditate upon God beyond the form, it further requires that I must give up even identification with my own body, with my own personality. That's all. Lord Krishna's kleshaha adhikataraha. Their affliction or their exertion is much greater. And so, thus, in a, in a way, Lord Krishna seems to be sort of praising Lord Krishna by by, by drawing our attention to the great difficulty involved in meditating or worshipping God beyond the attributes, in us, in a way, is telling us that it is easier to worship the God with attributes. That is our prescribing that. In prescribing that, it is better to worship God with attributes. At the point in time, at the point, in the level of development that Arjuna is, or the most seekers are. Okay. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamadachyade 
పూర్ణ పూర్ణమాదాయ పూర్ణమేవశిష్యంకరాచార్యం కేశవం బాదరాయణం సూత్రభాష్యకృతే